Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens? Beautiful people everywhere. It's your girl, CK McGee, and I am your host. Hey, beautiful people. I'm back. Have you missed me? Well, I sure have missed you all. And even though it is necessary to take a break in order to catch your breath, I'm happy to be back here with you. I pray that you are all doing as well as you can be. Welcome to season three of Village Mentality. I have a plethora of topics that I will be talking to you about this season. And I'm also looking forward to introducing a new monthly segment that is centered around my love of music. So be sure to stay tuned for that segment coming in the very near future. But before I begin today's show, there is a shout out that I would like to give to someone who is very special to me, my little brother, who will be celebrating his birthday this coming weekend, Father's Day weekend. And it is a milestone. Now, I'm not going to be putting his business out there and telling y'all how old he's going to be, but it's definitely a milestone. And I swear, it seems like it was just yesterday when our mother brought him home. I was so taken with him that you would have thought that he was my own baby. <laughs> I can remember having my friends come over just so that they could see him. I changed his diapers and fed him and did all of that. And I remember that for a time, everywhere I went, he wanted to be right there with me. And you know what, y'all? I did not mind. Yeah, we definitely have lots and lots of memories. Our mother refers to us as her bookends. I have watched him grow into a fine man with a family of his own now, blazing his own trail in the world. And I hope that he knows how very proud I am of him. So Village, join me in wishing my brother the happiest of birthdays. And I pray, little bruh, that you will have many, many more to come. Now, in tribute to this very special day, I thought that I would play something from his favorite hip hop artist, Tupac. Now this song was released on September 15th, 1996, just two days after his death. And it was the third and final single from his fourth studio album, All Eyes on Me. The song features contemporary soul singer, Danny Boy, who provided the vocals for the hook. The song is a reminiscence of how time has changed from when he was younger to when he became famous. He speaks of losing touch with people and how many people turned on him after his success. And you know what, today would have been Tupac's 50th birthday. Here's, I ain't mad at you. Happy birthday, little bro.
Singing how you change, but you a Muslim now. No more dope games. I just got the phone call, heard you got bail. Wanna go to the mosque, no time for females. I'm losing touch with my homie, he's a change man. He hit the pen and now no sinning is the game plan. When I say I'm living large, all you see is the struggle. When I say I'm still thugging, all you see is the trouble. Congratulations on the wedding I hope your wife know She got a player for life And everybody miss you I know we grew apart You probably don't remember I used to be with the sister But never did get with her And I can see us after school We bomb On the first player haters With the wrong set on Now the whole thing's changed Cause we don't even kick it Got a big money scheme And you ain't even with it Knew in my heart She was the same young brother that When it's time for Rogo Told her to watch her brother's back I can't even lie I ain't laughing at you, you trying hard to maintain, but go ahead, cause I ain't mad at you. Besides bumping and grinding, wasn't nothing on our mind. In time, we learned to live a life of crime. Rewind me back to a place which much too young to know. I caught a felony loving the way the guns blow. And even though we separated, you told me to wait. Don't get nobody my loving while I be locked up state. I kissed my mama goodbye and wiped the tears from my lonely eyes. Said I'll return, but I gotta fight the fix to ride. Don't shed a tear. Mama, I ain't happy here. Drown no more smiles for a couple of years. They got me going max. I'm knocking busters on their backs in my cell, thinking hell. I know one day I'll be back. But as soon as I touch down, I tell my girl I'll be there. So I'm prepared to get loved at. My homies wanna kick it, but I'm just laughing at you. Y'all play too many games. And I ain't mad at you. While all my homies stuck in prison Barely breathing, believing that the world is a prison It's like a ghetto we can never leave A broken rose giving bloom through the cracks of the concrete So many other things for us to see Things to be our history so full of tragedy and misery To all my homies never made it home The dead peers I shed tattoo tears for when I'm alone Picture us inside a ghetto heaven A place to rest, finding peace through this land of stress In my chest I feel pain coming sudden storms Life full of rain in this game, watch for land dawn Our unborn never got to grow, never got to see what's next In this world full of countless threats I beg God to make a way for our ghetto kids to breathe Show a sign, make us all believe Cause I ain't mad at you For all the homeboys that passed away I ain't mad All the homeboys locked in jail All the people that lost a loved one this year I... We ain't mad 
Okay, so if you've been hanging out with me these past couple of seasons, you know that I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, whether it's about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It. Now, you know, there's a lot that's been going on, you guys, since I've been away. So let's do a little bit of catch up here, shall we? Now, tennis pro Naomi Osaka, she recently withdrew from the 2021 French Open after being fined and threatened with suspension for refusing to appear at tournament press conferences, explaining that those appearances cause her great anxiety. She also went on to mention that she has been dealing with serious bouts of depression ever since she won her very first Grand Slam, which was the US Open back in 2018 against tennis icon, Serena Williams. Now, it was a definite unexpected upset, y'all. And the crowd was not very gracious at all. I remember that that game. In fact, they were so cruel that Serena herself had to talk to them publicly in regard to it, you know, and you could see visibly how shaken and disturbed Naomi was about their response to their to her win. It was it was really kind of sad actually. And 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 quite uncalled for, frankly, you know. I know that at that time Serena was chasing I might, it might be like the most wins, you know, like ever, you know, Grand Slam wins or what have you. And, you know, of course we want to see her, you know, get that, but you know what? She didn't get it that time. And, you know, they shouldn't have done that to her. So kudos to Serena for, you know, like really setting them straight in terms of that, but it left a lasting effect on Naomi. So Before the French Open began, Naomi talked about wanting to protect her mental health, which is why she announced her intentions of not making those appearances with the press ahead of time. But girl, I bet you she did not know. She did not imagine the backlash that she would initially receive. Eventually, the organizers of the French Open and Roland Garros, they did wish her the best and stated that with all of the Grand Slams moving forward, you know, the WTA, the ATP, and the ITF, that they would remain committed to all the athletes while being and improving every aspect of the player's experience. Now, she withdrew because she didn't want to be a distraction to the other players. And, you know, oftentimes I know that for myself, like pretty early on in my own journey with my mental health, in wanting to, you know, please people, um, because quite frankly, I was too scared to reveal how much I was struggling with my own mental health. I would force myself to do things that quite frankly, I was not well enough to do and ended up making matters worse for myself as a result. But my first thought was, was not for me, you know, it was always for others. And I learned eventually that you have to be honest for your own sake and consider your own well-being because in the end, it will benefit everyone, you know? And so I applaud Naomi Osaka for learning this lesson 
and for having the courage to stand flat-footed in her decision to do what is best for her health and well-being. Now, like I said, eventually the organizers of the event, they gave a statement that supported her instead of further criticizing her, and they wished her well and, you know, remain hopeful that she will be able to participate in next year's tournament. Naomi is hoping that when she returns, though, that she'll be able to work out better ways that players can be accommodated, as well as the press and the fans. So she wrote this on her social media, y'all, and it says, quote, Hey, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. I'm writing this to say I'm not going to do any press during Roland Garros. I've often felt that people have no regard for athletes' mental health, and this rings very true whenever I see a press conference or partake in one. We sit there and are asked questions that we've been asked multiple times before, or we are asked questions that bring doubts into our own minds, and I'm just not going to subject myself to people that doubt me. I've watched many clips of athletes breaking down after a loss in the press room, and I know that you have as well. I believe the whole situation is kicking a person while they're down, and I do not understand the reasoning behind it." Unquote. Village, let's send her our best wishes, and I do pray that there will be more like her who are courageous enough to speak about their challenges, as well as to help bring change to how mental health and how mental illness are perceived. And we can finally end the stigma that surrounds it once and for all. And I would also like to give a special shout out to my forever first lady, Michelle Obama, as well as Prince Harry, for also being courageous enough to talk about their struggles with their mental health recently. It is just a reminder that it does not matter who you are or what your station is in life. We all have to do our best to take care of ourselves and each other. And speaking of mental health, now 45, the puppet master is still pulling the strings of the Republican Party. Well, you know, it seems that the party of Lincoln who at this point must be rolling over in his grave because apparently someone needs to get on the piano and start playing the parties over because these people have seriously fallen and bumped their heads. They no longer have minds of their own. And for those who did not like Representative Liz Cheney, the Republican from Wyoming, for actually being someone who was outspoken in her non-support of 45 and the quote-unquote big lie, which contends that the 2020 election was stolen. You know, they just voted to remove her a few months ago from her leadership position, and not because she wasn't doing her job, but because she would not play ball, which seems to drive every action that most Republicans take these days in fear of losing 45 support and retaining their power in Congress. Now, these are all the same people that at one time spoke out in believing that 45 should be held responsible for the insurrection that took place right before our very eyes on January 6th of this year. And the constant comparison, which I'm sick of y'all, to the Black Lives Matter movement or suggestions that Antifa, you know, the organization that fights against white supremacy and fascism, are constantly being blamed for violent behavior by 
by some, you know, during the protests that took place last year after George Floyd was killed in our village. You may wonder, why should we care about this? Well, it's because the big lie has been the very reason behind voter suppression legislation across the country as a way to make it more difficult for people of color to vote. You see, when we come out and vote, honey, we flip the script and that is not what they want at all. They don't want this smoke. And as long as we as communities of color become disenfranchised with voting, feeling that nothing ever changes, we play right into their hands because that is precisely what they want for us to not vote. We have to see the course and continue to practice our civic duty to ensure that we are holding those whom we've elected accountable for doing the things that they said they would do, or at least take the time to find those whose agenda addresses the concerns that we as communities of color have, and then withdraw our support from those who do not live up to those who are out there doing all they can to make the change. We gotta do the work, whether you realize it or not. These are the same people whose decisions impact our daily lives. And until we are able to do something differently, you know, something independent from them, we need to be attuned to what's going on around us. Now, on April 27th, 2021, an African-American man by the name of Anthony Brown Jr., a 40-year-old resident of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, was killed while a warrant was being served. He was unarmed, according to his family. Now, this occurred just 24 hours after the guilty verdict on all counts came in for Derek Chauvin, former Minnesota police officer who knelt on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds, and also Micaiah Bryant, who was shot by police in Columbus, Ohio. And once again, the question of excessive force by police towards African-Americans, men in particular, continues to remain. In this instance, it was reported that six to eight gunshots could be heard. And the autopsy would later indicate that he was shot, Anthony that is, five times, including once in the back of the head. The DA in North Carolina, Andrew Womble, showed footage that was supposed to support the excessive force that was used by officers issuing the warrant. He says that the shooting was justified, though so they all say. However, there was nothing in the footage that we've been shown, that we've been allowed to see, that supports that claim. While it has been reported that Anthony Brown Jr. has a history of resisting arrest or being taken into police custody in the past, they will always say that they feared for their lives as justification to use excessive force against people of color instead of employing de-escalation tactics. Well, one of my favorite shows is back. It's United Shades of America. And so for those of you in the village who may not be familiar with this show, it follows comedian and political provocateur W. Kamal Bell as he explores communities across America to understand the unique challenges that they face. 
He kicked his season off with discussions surrounding policing the police. After the death of George Floyd, some wondered if the summer of 2020 was America's year of reckoning. Now, no doubt, there has been riots that have taken place in our country before for various reasons. But last year's protests were on a different level as people from across the globe demonstrated in support of the Black Lives Matter movement because of the way that George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin, former Minnesota police officer. I think it was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Now, some would say that because of the pandemic, that for the first time, people who were at home as a result of it were able to see firsthand how African-Americans are treated at the hands of police. Now, some may say from a historical point of view that this was not the first time that our white counterparts got to see an African-American die in front of them, especially if they were a part of a lynch mob who would exact justice as soon as they believed some unproven offense had been committed by a person of color. So what's the difference this time? Well, kings and queens, this is a different generation, a generation of people who actually believe that people, although the color of the skin may be different from theirs, still deserve to be treated like human beings. Note with this generation, there will be no picnic baskets packed and family outings taken to the town square so that the family could be in for a day of fun while they watch a black person get lynched. These days, they have traded in those picnic baskets for picket signs, supporting black lives instead. The conversation also involved the mentioning of Oscar Grant. He was a 22-year-old African-American who was killed in the early morning hours of New Year's Day in 2009 in Oakland, California, specifically at Fruitvale Station by BART police officer who was responding to reports of a fight that happened on the train, which Oscar attempted to break up. He wasn't actually a part of the fight, y'all. There was a lot discussed in this episode, including the need for funding for programs that communities of color really need. Mental health, substance abuse, homelessness, and you know, the people that are trained, you know, in these areas, they need to be present to deal with individuals who may be in distress and need critical support and attention and not a death sentence. So if you're interested in watching United Shades of America, uh, the season is now in progress and it uh, airs at 10 p.m. Sunday nights on CNN. You guys should check it out if you get a chance. Well, beautiful people, after all of that, I think it's time for me to take a walk to my musical jukebox. Now, this first song by this Canadian singer-songwriter was written for her album, Surfacing. She states that writing this song was pretty easy and that the bulk of the song came to her in about three hours. The inspiration for the song came from an article that she read in Rolling Stone magazine about musicians turning to heroin to cope with the pressures of the music industry, most notably a keyboardist for the group Smashing Pumpkins, 
who had died of an overdose in 1996. She completely identified with the feelings that could lead someone to heroin and said, quote, I've been in that place where you've messed up and you're so lost that you do not know who you are anymore and you're miserable. And here's the escape route, unquote. This was her second consecutive top five hit on the US Billboard Hot 100, peaking at number four. And in her native country of Canada, it was the number one song on the adult contemporary chart for 1999. Here's Sarah McLaughlin with Angel. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. Thank you. 
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, so today's topic is actually um, part one of a two-part series. We're gonna be talking about homelessness here in America, right? It's a big, big topic. And I really feel like I could probably say something about it, you know, during every episode for this season, but I decided to just keep it to two. And, you know, homelessness has been a very serious issue in this country for at least the past 40 years. Now, 17 out of every 10,000 people in the United States were experiencing homelessness on a single night in January 2019 during HUD's annual point in time count. These 567,000 plus people, they represent a cross section of America and they are associated with every region of the country family status, gender category, and racial ethnic group. There are certain subpopulations that are significantly represented within homelessness. So let's talk a little bit about these groups. Starting with individuals who make up about 70% of people experiencing homelessness. They're living on their own or in the company of other adults. And the remainder, 30% uh, of those people are uh, families with children, right? Another subgroup are males. Now, homelessness is significantly defined by gender. 60% of all people experiencing homelessness are male. Among individuals, the numbers are starker. 70% of men and un unaccompanied male youth are homeless. And then you have those who are unsheltered. Far too many people in America sleep outside and in other locations not meant for human habitation. This group includes more than 200,000 people, which is 37% of the overall population. Among individuals experiencing homelessness, the numbers are more dire. It's one in two that are unsheltered. You have those who are most at risk. The numerical size is one reason to focus on a subpopulation within homelessness. Risk is another. Some groups are much more likely to become homeless than the national average. So here they are. <clears throat> Pacific Islanders and natives or indigenous people are most likely to be homeless in America when compared to all other racial ethnic groups. Within the former, 160 people experience homelessness out of every 10,000 compared to the national average of 17 out of every 10,000. Pacific Islanders and natives indigenous people are numerically small groups within the US making it more difficult for the US Census Bureau and homelessness services system to count them accurately. Nevertheless, available data suggests they face significant challenges. Next up, African-Americans, multiracial Americans, and Latinx are similarly situated. Now these group members are far more likely, excuse me, far more likely to be homeless than the national average and white Americans and at rates that are disproportionate to their makeup of the general population. We also have prioritized groups. Researchers in the public policy world have emphasized some additional subpopulations 
Chronically homeless individuals are disabled and have experienced long-term and or repeated episodes of homelessness. They are currently 17% of the population. Veterans who are 7% of people experiencing homelessness are prioritized due to their service to our country. And unaccompanied youth represent 6% of the population and they are a vulnerable age group consisting of those under 25 years old. Also, COVID-19 vulnerable. Now, according to the CDC, there were some individuals who were at higher risk of becoming seriously ill from COVID-19. They included older adults that were 65 and older. However, people experiencing homelessness age faster than housed people. That makes sense, right? Research indicates they have physical conditions that mirror those of people 15 to 20 years older than them. Now, on a single day, an estimated 200, over 200,000 single adults experiencing homelessness are over age 50, suggesting that they may be uniquely vulnerable to becoming seriously ill during the pandemic crisis. Of course, that was information that they were, you know, looking at um, at the height of the pandemic last year, you know, just to kind of give us an idea of what was happening to that particular group. An additional CDC identified risk group is people with pre-existing health conditions. Before the current crisis, growing numbers were experiencing unsheltered homelessness, a living situation associated with poor health. A recent study sampled unsheltered individuals from across the country, finding 84% self-reporting existing physical health conditions, and only 19% of people in shelters said the same. Again, that makes sense. You know, when you're talking about unsheltered, you're talking about people who are on the streets, might be in their cars, you know, or like they said, in some inhabitable place that's not meant for humans to be, you know, so it would almost, it would only stand to reason that versus those that might be in a shelter, um, you know, homelessness can be considered if you don't have your own address, you know, you could be like couch surfing, there's different forms of, you know, that as well but you still have, you know, four walls and a roof over your head and you're not subject to, you know, the elements outside, you know, so that would only stand to reason. Now, in addition, y'all, to these subpopulations, there are those who actually blame the homeless for their predicament. But the realities, as well as the statistics, the statistics often prove those assumptions about the causes of homelessness and the best ways to solve it are wrong. Two thirds of all homeless are single adults while the remaining third are made up of families and unaccompanied youth. Most self-resolve or exit homelessness within a few days or weeks. In fact, only about 16% are chronically homeless. And while there are 190,000 visible homeless each night on the streets in the United States. Many more live in shelters or are otherwise hidden from public view. Again, sleeping in their cars, for example. Most often, popular perceptions of exactly why a person might be homeless are driven by those who are most visible and 
by their portrayals in the media. Now, Silver School of Social Work professor, Deborah K. Paget, a leading scholar on homelessness, is the co-principal author of a recent study that found that New York City policies to stem street homelessness, while they're well-intended, can increase rather than reduce alienation because they rarely take into account a homeless person's individual needs, such as pet ownership, health issues, or difficulties obtaining identification documents, among other factors. Much of Paget's work has explored the long-term cost benefit and effectiveness of providing housing and support to homeless individuals upfront without first requiring treatment compliance and drug and alcohol abstinence. So there are those out there who have the mindset that housing should be used as uh, some kind of reward for those who are able to eradicate the problems or factors that led to their homelessness. But for people like Paget, they believe that housing produces a foundation upon which to build and that by having a place to call home makes it a little easier to be able to mitigate the issues that cause their homelessness as well as any other problems that are apparent as a result of it. This increasingly used approach, which originated in New York, shout out to my home state, is known as housing first. And you know, I think that's like a, a really um, a good point made by Paget. You know, in in most cases, it's like being able to be housed, it's like dangled in front of people like a carrot, okay? You know, first, you know, sober up. Um, you know, first, you know, make sure you go to like some kind of program, you know, and detox and, you know, you know, do all of these things first and then we'll, we'll give you a, a home. And, you know, she's making the argument that, no, why don't we give them a home first, someplace where they belong, someplace where they can hang their hat at night you know, someplace where they can feel safe and then be motivated to, you know, do what they need to, to get better, you know, and to find the support that they need to improve their situation. And then eventually down the road, you know, get the job. So she's, she's asking that, you know, we give stability first and not make housing this carrot that we're dangling in front of people's faces. Treat them like, oh, I don't know, human beings, for instance. Well, this just may be a very good place to stop. Now, I'm going to continue talking about the 12 myths of homelessness, as well as homelessness and its impact on our mental health next week in part two. Now, this next song was first released as a single in July of 1994. And included, it was included in the film, The Never-Ending Story, part three of that year. It was re-released a year later in 95 as part of the Batman Forever film soundtrack, helping it top the charts in the United States and Australia. It also reached the top 10 in several other countries, including Canada, France, Iceland, and Norway. At the 1996 Grammy Awards, it won an award for record of the year and song of the year, as well as best male pop vocal performance. Initially, the singer was embarrassed by this song and threw it into the corner and went on to say, quote, to be honest, 
I was never really that proud of it. Thought I like, excuse me, though I like what Trevor did with the recording. He turned that tape, <laughs> he took that tape from the corner uh, and he turned it into another 8 million record sales. And my name became a household name, unquote. <laughs> Isn't it great when someone believes in you, even when you don't believe in yourself? <laughs> Indeed, this artist was correct. And his name is Seal. And this is Kiss from Rose. Tell me, is that 
healthy baby But did you know that when it snows My eyes become large and the light that you shine can't be seen about that time where we will now get into our inspirational story for this week. Now, the name of this week's inspirational is called Just Be. All right, so here goes. One evening, after spending several days with his new wife, a man leaned over and whispered into her ear, I love you. She smiled and the man smiled back and she said, when I'm 80 years old and I'm thinking back on my entire life, I know I will remember this moment. A few minutes later, she drifted off to sleep. The man was left with the silence of the room and the soft sound of his wife's breathing. He stayed awake thinking about everything they had done together from their first date to their first vacation together and ultimately to their big wedding. These were just some of the life choices that the couple had made together that had led to this very moment of silence in the presence of each other. At one point, the man then realized that it didn't matter what they had done or where they had gone, nor did it matter where they were going. The only thing that mattered was the serenity of that very moment, just being together, breathing together, and resting together. What's the moral of the story? We can't let the clock, calendar, or pressure from external sources take over our lives and allow us to forget the fact that every moment of our lives is a gift and a miracle, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant it is. Being mindful in the special moments that you spend in the presence of the ones that you love are the moments that truly give your life meaning. And so Village, that brings us to our last song. 
and bringing it home for us this evening is a 1973. That's right. Y'all heard me. I told you, you ain't never going to know what I'm playing. This was a number one hit single, which was their second release after departing Motown and joining Buddha Records. It won the 1974 Grammy Award for Best R&B Vocal Performance by Duo, Group, or Chorus, and has become these next artist's signature song. And I have a feeling that you all will definitely recognize it once you hear it, because it's Gladys Knight and the Pips with Midnight Train to Georgia. Don't always come true. Oh no. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. 
Well, kings and queens, we have come to the end of another show, our first show of the season, in fact. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. Remember, it is always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I look forward to being with you all again next week. Please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram and Facebook at villagementality.ckm. Also, you can catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. And there's also a link to each episode available on Instagram and Facebook at villagementality.ckm. And just remember that God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's to brighter days.